Welcome, I'm David Castro, board member of the Alliance of Leadership Fellows. Today, the Alliance is excited to continue a series of national conversations engaging leaders at the frontiers of social justice. Our conversation today is about the climate crisis, which now threatens not only human communities around the world, but also the ecosystems that support life on Earth. Our series is called Talk That Walks. Our program convenes frontline leaders at the critical place where thought becomes change. The leaders in today's dialogue inhabit the transition point where experience and insight take flight as impactful action. We want to thank the Americana Foundation for supporting today's conversation. To learn more about the vision and mission of the Alliance, visit us on the web at allianceofleadershipfellows.org. I'm passing the baton now to Daniel Katz. Daniel is a leading global environmental activist. He's the founder of the renowned Rainforest Alliance and also serves as the lead environmental advisor to the Overbrook Foundation. He's also a Kellogg Foundation National Leadership Fellow. Daniel will be your guide for the rest of this event. Thanks very much and, and it's nice to be here. I'd like to welcome our two panelists, Ben Strauss from Climate Central and Julia Kamari Jopkin from IC Change. Today we're going to spend the, the well, we're going to this next hour talking about extreme climate events and the work that you're doing, how they tie in together. But first, I wanted to set a little bit of context, not for you two because you clearly are aware of this. But in the last eight years, we've had eight of the hottest years on record. 19 of the hottest years have been since 2000. There's been a 1.28 degrees Celsius and rising global temperature increase since pre-industrial times. Weather-related catastrophes are going on around us all the time. Pakistan is still partly underwater. The U.S. West Coast is having extreme weather right now. Once in a century, storms are becoming more like once a season. So clearly, things aren't the way they were. And I wanted to ask you both, Ben and Julia, if you could both tell us a little bit about yourselves and your in organizations, and then we'll dive deeper into what's going on in the world today. So Julia, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, so I'm Julia Kamari Drapkin. Again, thanks for the introduction. I, I'm the CEO of IC Change. IC Change is a climate data and engagement platform to help cities combat climate change. So we leverage resident-generated data, that's stories, photos, measurements, and we leverage that against um, modeling data, AI sensors, and we allow cities, engineers, and utilities to use the information to design climate-ready infrastructure prioritizing their insights and actually improving results when it comes to adapting flooding or extreme heat, um, air quality issues, um, and even in mitigation when we try and reduce our carbon emissions. That's awesome. Great. Ben, Ben? Yeah. Um, so again, thank you for having us uh, and the earlier introduction. My name is Ben Strauss, uh, CEO and Chief Scientist at Climate Central. Our mission is to make accurate and effective climate communication ubiquitous. Uh, in, in the service of uh, informing and inspiring and catalyzing action at the scale we need to meet the level of the threat, uh, which uh, the science continues to tell us is, is indeed quite grave. And, and you know, increasingly, you just have to look out your window or in, at the news. 
right? Clearly, uh, around the world, just looking out the window, you can you are able to see a lot more of what's going on. When I first got into the field of sustainability, uh, gosh, several four decades ago, there weren't people who worked in the field like both of you. And uh, how did, what's your background for each of you? Yeah, well, I did not start uh, in data or running a tech company. Um, I started as a journalist um, and I was a climate science reporter for over 15 years. I covered the Asian tsunami and Hurricane Katrina in the same year. And um, I think what led me to start IC Change um, was that I kept seeing the same problem over and over again. Um, even when climate wasn't the conversation, maybe it was responding to a disaster, maybe it was um, inequity. And we saw that top-down, well-intentioned solutions weren't able to keep pace with local needs and particularly local climate needs. And so I you know, created IC Change coming out of that experience to meet um, top down from bottom up and get better results. And I, I guess um, I've kind of known I was pointed toward environmental work, uh, if not climate, for a, a long time. I got inspired when I was in high school. Shortly after the last year that was below average temperature globally, <laughs> um, you know, uh, below the 20th century average, I think it was around 13. but. But um, I guess I, I was really fixated on the idea of wanting to make a positive contribution in the world, but I saw that different people in different places and times had very different views of what was good and right uh, or, or terribly wrong. Uh, and I decided that the whole human story, right, is, is kind of a drama and we're trying to figure out what's right. Justice, conflict, war and peace, disease, these are big, hard problems that we are, will constantly struggle to advance and resolve. And I didn't feel confident about what, you know, th that I would have, um, you know, the, the right vision, a vision that would be judged well by people in other places or in the future. But I decided one thing I could feel very confident about, which is that we can't burn down the theater as we advance this drama. And, and so kind of that core insight put me into environmental and climate work. And I um, went on to get a degree in ecology and evolution uh, at, uh, and then went immediately, uh, I was one of the first foreign employees after that at Climate Central where I didn't anticipate doing any more research. Um, the, the idea of the organization when it was founded 15 years ago was really to help synthesize and translate climate science, of which you know there was and is plenty, but into language and images that were much more um, accessible for kind of the lay public. Um, and so we, we did that and we continued to do that, but along the way, we also discovered that there were some kind of missing little pieces of research that uh, you know, for an extra 10% of work, we could tell stories in a much more powerful way that would kind of reach people much more effectively uh, as well. And, and that weren't completely aligned with the incentives in academia, right? Academics weren't necessarily producing the science that would help um, the public and decision makers understand kind of the, the stakes, consequences uh, of climate change or the best responses to them. 
So that's great. So you both work on storytelling, data collection, and explanation of the explanation of why that's valuable. I mean, is it why is it valuable? Can't we just look out the window and go, oh, things are getting worse? There's, you know, it's going on around the world. We hear it all the time. Why, why is it so valuable now? Or why is it still valuable? Um, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to flip the order here. So, so um, for this one, just, I, I think, right, we live in a time with so much polarization right now and ideological conflict and, uh, you know, truth or facts, empirical objective reality is coming under attack. And I think the, you know, the climate problem is physics-based, it's science-based, it's reality-based. And if we go to a world where it's just kind of purely what I think, what I saw, like, of course, we all know it's climate change. I think that's um, much more fragile than if we have uh, a, a kind of it's much more fragile to counterattack or, or this dilution of what is fact um, than if we have a strong scientific grounding uh, or backing to it. That is not to disavow the importance of individual observation at all, right? Like it's very important to share our personal stories, our personal observations, but it has to be connected with the scientific framework. Because um, if we let go of that, it's just, Someday someone's going to say, no, you're making that up. You're, it, and uh, it'll be very counterproductive that, that some big claim, some important person will be subject to you know, a counterattack that, that could lead to a backslide. I think there's a couple of things in there in terms of what Ben is responding to. And, and we definitely have similar but different takes on it. So when it comes to climate change and its physicality and physical science, this idea of, of absolute objectivity is, is something that I actually don't agree with <laughs> in the sense that science is still doing its best to guess at where we are and where we are going. And there are significant gaps in that guessing process. We are, the scientific method is what it is. It's its best approach to being as objective as possible. But whether it's modeling, whether it's this event here, there's there are different impacts and there is different data gaps that any that that the collective when um approached to you know and and gathered properly can really fill and really augment so the plural of of story is data in many respects um, and those stories are really representative of different impacts. So there can be an absolute event, whether it's an atmospheric river or, you know, my first example actually would be 9-11, right? 9-11 happened. We know it was, it happened. That That is undeniable, right? But how it was experienced by so many different people in so many different places, completely and totally subjective. And climate change is very similar in that regard in terms of there, you don't experience climate change impacts the same way as your neighbor, as uh, the person in you know, a different city, state, and so on. And so the collective stories that impact those measurements and perspectives and the ability 
your relative ability to adapt or be resilient to these stresses is really critical information that is really challenging to gather at scale unless you're using something that like I see change, wherein what you see out your window is different from somebody else who's maybe got the window coming at them. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's really critical to be packaged alongside traditional data so that we get a better sense of impact and a better sense of accuracy from different perspectives. So you both look at you both look at this hyper local data in different ways, right? Julia, from what I understand, your organization uses citizen science or citizen storytelling to have we just call it being a good 21st century citizen. Okay. But yes, that is a traditional way of thinking. And, about and it. you you ask people to report in on what's going on in their backyard or in their neighborhood, right? And mm -hmm. as as a way to help understand how it impacts different people in different ways. And Ben, mm -hmm. I remember you for uh, mapping like every inch of the coastal United States as a way to understand who is going to get hit and when. And do you still feel like this hyper-local approach is the way to go at it? Or do we need to be going at it at a, at a cop policy level and a, you know, in a, at a bigger framework yeah. What's most important? I mean, I, I would say, um, you know, both and, but from a, from a communication and psychological point of view, we know that, right, when you go tell someone, right, the sky is falling, there's this global catastrophe, right, people don't feel very empowered to do much about that. It can be a turnoff. Whereas if you present, here's a local problem, you're faced with a, a threat of flooding or your neighbor is experiencing it, people in the community are saying they're having this problem. It's much, it's much more real, it's practical. And I think it's something that someone can easily see that they can take potentially effective actions to try and combat. Um, and so it's just much more accessible. We really- what kind of what, what are those actions? I mean, I, to me, it feels like sometimes, even though I've worked on you know environmental issues forever, sometimes it feels like, gosh, I'm just this one individual. Uh, how can I affect the weather? Well, yeah. So you, as an individual, anything you do about the weather is going to be very diluted. It's going to be divided by eight billion people and and take decades to realize its benefit. But uh, you can very credibly. Um, if you live in a home that you know the sea is rising and floods are coming more frequently, you can put in flood vents. You can take your appliances out of the basement. Um, you you can organize in your community to build some berms and uh, other protections. Right, there are a lot of things which you can do, uh, and this is more on the adaptation or resilience side. But um, th that will like very credibly and clearly have. A benefit to you and your community, right? If, if, if you do them, um, so I think it's in a, a certain way. It's a, there's a much lower threshold to action, and and people can feel there will be a benefit for what they do. Now, we still need to cut emissions. My feeling is that the more people, communities, corporations, and governments engage in adaptation work, the more. It, difficult and expensive we'll see it is the more you understand how it multiplies and the bigger the impetus also becomes 
well, hey, you know, we've got to do both. We've we've got to at a collective scale, you know, reduce the emissions that are making this problem worse, and that's only going to work at a big collective scale. Um, but I can also take effective action as an individual to um, do something to protect myself and my community from you know the impacts that are already here and only getting worse. I have a little bit of a take on this too, in the sense yeah. that I think that the individual begets collective. Um, as long as there's a mechanism in which we can, you know, transparently see it and measure it. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, so um, I see change in our first um, infrastructure project that we ever deployed in a commercial um, way was uh, around the uh, Gentilly Resilience District in New Orleans. And we had residents tracking flooding in their neighborhood, um, across the neighborhood. It was part of a $140 million uh, investment from, from HUD uh, during the Obama administration. And, you know, it was part of it was like an education, like, hey, you know, this is a flood prone community. How can we all you know, mitigate flooding individually on our properties, but also measure and see flooding together. And so it was education on what you could do. And so again, on the individual level, we're all trying to figure out how to adapt and how to mitigate and what's working and what's not. And so being able to document that process and share it out loud so that we're all learning because there's no one city in the world. And I don't care if you're the Dutch or if you're New York City or, you know, we're all trying to figure stuff out. And there's a lot of mistakes being made that can be learned from, as well as awesome insights from the ground up. Um, but when we pull it together, then there's even opportunities for impact at scale. So for example, in New Orleans and in Miami and some of the other communities we work in in the United States, um, that flood data together, when, when you looked at it and we compared it to the stormwater models, we appreciated that um, the flooding was being underestimated in some of our low-income neighborhoods. And we were able to then use that data as a catalyst to get the modeling redone and residents were right. And as a result of that work, we were able to reallocate $4.8 million in stormwater infrastructure to that neighborhood to be more, you know, ready for a bigger storm um, event than they would have otherwise been, you know, receiving. So that, what does that break down to? It means that these folks won't have to worry about losing their car in the street, which is their second, if not first primary asset. Um, and then we were able to replicate that in the city of Miami where the city used our data to help generate $20 million in stormwater infrastructure, again, in, in neighborhoods that were um, um, underestimated in the flooding um, modeling and, and so on. And so that individual action of like, hey, I'm, I'm taking care of myself can actually amplify if we create the networks in which that can happen. Um, so and really, just, you can't do it alone. <laughs> you just can't. I back it out. And I think it's so interesting um, so we know that those who are typically hurt, hit first and worst by the climate crisis are not those who caused the crisis in the first place. They, they use fewer resources, right? So I'm trying to imagine, you know, if you're in New Orleans and Katrina's happening and you're in the Ninth Ward and, and the storm is, is, is coming, is the data that you're trying to get, like, I'm, I should look out the window and tell you what's going on and report in? Is that where you're getting your data or is it coming from all different walks of life? Um, it depends on where we're, we're working and for what application. 
So from a municipal perspective, we actually, um, you know, uh, we have cities who, per, per, who purchase IC change and then use IC change as the flood reporting tool for the city. So if you, whether it was a, a very, a one-year event, a two-year event, a five-year event, we're actually doing ongoing data collection about maintenance, places that, you know, the city is responsible for fixing, which are also early indicators of where you might need attention during major events. And then we're repurposing the data for model validation for infrastructure design and implementation. And yes, during emergencies, we are on deck. Um, we're not an emergency service. We are the tool that you use to help triage emergencies services. So if you need rescue, call 911. But if you want to report flooding in your neighborhood to your city, use IC change. And that way we can decrease that pressure on those emergency services. Um, you know, there's really not very much space for climate change in the space of utilities or cities or even, in, you know, the way we, we, we citizens are traditionally called to report on things are not uh, really suited to, uh, to climate change. There's a service for um, 311 where I'm just like, hey, fill this pothole. And then there's a there's a service called 911 where he's like, hey, I'm in trouble, rescue me. And then everything in the middle that we're dealing with when it comes to climate change, which starts as which which begins as nuisance, but actually adds up into bigger picture um, data value and insights to your community's experience with their lived environment with the built environment and the, the natural environment and the social environment. Those things are all colliding all the time when it comes to climate impact. Um, we need to understand how that works and you need to have a dialogue with your citizens. So if you're an engineering firm and you're wanting to design um, a new park or a coastal, a coastal resilience, or, you know, you're trying to design nature-based solutions, like having insights from the community who lives there, they can actually help you do that better. Mm -hmm. um, they can tell you about invasives that are already plaguing them in their, you know, in their neighborhoods. And when you build that nature-based solution, you don't want to have those there. So those kinds of insights are, are populated by residents using the tool on a daily basis. But yes, when a major event happens, we ideally are in place, but I'll guarantee you, like, you know, we're looking at California right now, all those folks who are having problems right now, there were definitely little leading indicators of vulnerability all along the way that if shared with their local uh, leaders and, you know, cities and, and government and utilities could have helped um, prepare better. Yeah, it sounds like you need a 611 since you've got the 311 and the 911. The 611 can be right there in the middle. Oh, I'll just take 1111. I, I, I. Do you hear from cities or do, do after events? Or can, <laughs> how, do you, how do you find a way or how, what is your strategy for reaching the cities before these events take place? Yeah, usually we're trying to get in place with our cities or engineering firms or utilities before an event happens. And that's ideal. And we're working with them and their networked partners to build an audience of users who are, are in the habit of doing this because it's it's really a habit. It's, you know, like, uh, I don't want you on IC change every single second. I want you to think about IC change when it matters. Um, and it can also be good stuff too. Like, you know, first bloom, uh, really nice walk in the park. Like it didn't flood today. It's just as important as it flooded today <laughs> to some of our customers. Um, but when the events happen, then we're in, we're in place. And, you know, we have users across the world actually. So in some of the countries that were in, in the rainforest Alliance, and that is without any marketing, um, people find us inbound and use IC change all around the world. We don't have customer relationships with other countries right now. Um, we did have a but most of our work is in, in North America, um, but we, you know, we'd love to. 
we'd love to expand out, uh, you know, and be able to work and, and get the data to the people who need it most, who are, who are responsible for making big decisions about how we adapt and how we mitigate and how we can do that with the least harm and the most um, benefit. And it makes me think kind of connecting back to the earlier part of the conversation about kind of science versus individual personal observation, right? There's a lot that individual observation is always going to be able to tell that we can't say with, with science, but science can provide a really useful context. And, and so the, the um, you know, our maps, for instance, can, you know, give a view to uh, at a large scale in those neighborhoods, but we're never going to map, you know, a broken sewer valve or, you know, small depressions or curbs that are broken or things that, you know, increase the flooding or decrease the flooding, right, in, in different small neighborhoods. But another piece of the context, it just seemed like an interesting moment um, to kind of talk about a big piece of work that we're trying to do at Climate Central, um, which is around attribution of extreme weather to climate change. And so it, um, we can, when there's a coastal flood, right, we're, we're working on research right now, which will let us attribute any coastal flood around the world, like a certain amount of that to sea level rise caused by human activity. Um, to say, literally say, well, this, this flooded, but it wouldn't have flooded. Or, you know, if, if the flood reached like an inch or four inches of, above your electric outlet, your lowest electric outlet and wrecked your electric system, like you can, you can say, well, that was climate change. Like the last four inches, the last five inches, right? In this location in the world is climate caused sea level rise. Mm -hmm. So we can provide that piece of context or with heat, right? We uh, recently launched a product that gives um, daily local attribution for temperature anywhere in the world. So basically if you have a hot day in New Orleans and there are more admissions to emergency rooms, people are reporting you know, really terrible conditions in their apartments, in some neighborhoods, perhaps ones with fewer trees and the power is out because a storm has been through. Mm. We, we, we can say, look, a day this hot at this time of year in this place, climate change made it three times more likely. And you know, put a number on that each day, each place in the world. And like pretty clearly, that's something that we're doing at a larger scale in the landscape right? If climate change is making your weather hotter, it's doing it over the region. But I can't tell you much at all, like block to block, like that's not the right scale even to talk about right. climate. Like then we need the observations, like what, what is the impact? How are people experiencing this? What are their stories? But, but, but that can be made more powerful in connecting it to that that climate science context. Yeah, you both use great science and it's super important. And I was gonna ask Ben, I know you- I, and, and, and I wasn't meaning to suggest, uh, I, there's the, obviously we do and there's yeah. a complementarity. Yeah, it, it's very- Yeah, we, we're like opposite sides of the same coin, but the, that's actually really important. You need both. Yeah. Like that's yeah. the whole point. You can't do one without the other because numbers on a map don't move people from their homes. And, you know, telling people that a heat wave is what their new norm is going to be is not as powerful alone, unless you actually are able to demonstrate health impacts over time. Um, and so, you know, Ben and I are, are 
I don't know what's a good metaphor for us. <laughs> we need each other. Absolutely. And, that, and we and we as a, a global citizenry need the, the work that you both are doing. And you both are no more about this issue than most of anyone on the planet. So let me ask you, let's go off book here. Let's pretend that nobody's nobody's listening. You go home at the end of the day, you know what you know, and you go, oh my God, you know, we're doing great work, but we are just so doomed here. Do you feel, do you ever feel like it's a lost cause or do you feel like, yeah, we have the tools and we have the wherewithal and we, we're going to be able to uh, make enough change to uh, make a positive difference at this point? Ben, what do you think? How do you go home <laughs> feeling? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I have a bunch of feelings about that. I mean, one is it really is never too late to do better. Um We've already made a pretty big mess. The mess is going to get a good deal worse, but it's never going to be too late to prevent it from getting even worse, right? Than it could. So I find I try not to like get too attached to any one particular goal, but rather I focus on the idea that I have a North Star and I try and move in the direction of the North Star right as as steadily as fast as far as i can because i you know you do get grim news every day in this business practically if if you if you read you know web clippings or have uh, different news alerts there's no way around it it's terrible um i also um since i'm really originally a biologist an evolutionary biologist I don't find it particularly natural for any species to, you know, forecast the future and change its behavior because of what's in the forecast. Um, some species kind of look like that, um, but it's only because evolution has smacked them in the past. You know, events have, you know, uh, shaped their behavior from the past. Um, so I, I look at human intellectual history and throughout time like different philosophers and leaders have wanted to say like oh people are special we're so much better than all of the rest of you know plants and animals or creation right we're we're created in god's image or whatever you know we're the center of the universe well okay we're not but we're the center of the solar system we're not we were <laughs> created by god no we weren't anyway this how would be, long, this would be a great how, way to how, do, many, how long have really people been special. here Ben, how long have how long have people been here, time-wise? Uh, well, depending what you might mean by people, Homo sapiens for about 300, 400,000 years, and and you know we've been walking upright for a couple million years. Do you think we just run our course as a species? Um, no, I wouldn't go that far yet. But we're making things pretty unpleasant for ourselves and especially mm -hmm. our descendants. Um, yeah, like. If we pull it out, right? If we kind of do something that controls the damage to enough to kind of preserve the possibility of reasonable kind of social and political organization and so forth, it, like to me, that will be the greatest achievement of all civilization, all humankind, right? So, like, that's the positive angle on it. And, um, I, I also, you know, 
per an earlier, like I do think this is our easiest hard challenge. Like, I don't know how to bring justice to the whole world. Like I believe deeply in trying and continuing to try. I don't know how to end war. I don't know how to cure disease. I don't know if we'll ever know any of those things. We know how to fix climate change. That's What's hard great. is that we have a much more of a time limit because right. from the future, 500 years, 1,000 years in the future, no one will care if we cured all disease this year or in 100 years, but they will care incredibly if we stop polluting the atmosphere this year or in 100 years. Right. So let's come back to that. Julia, what about you? At the end of the day, you have my children or child. Um, oh, yeah. He'll pop in any second. Um, so what is it like when you go at the end of the day? Oh, I mean, I do this every day with him in mind. Absolutely. That he was born. He, I was pregnant with him the day we got our first contract with NASA. Um, by accident, all happened together, right? Um, and so he's always been karmically kind of related to all of this. My husband and I both work in climate change. Um, my husband is an energy efficiency policy advocate uh, and works on behalf of, of the public with utility regulation. And it is really intense work. Um, so we both really grind every day on this issue. Um, we live with it. We are, you know, take it home <laughs> and um, have dedicated our lives to it. And it is hard. It is is sincerely hard, but there is this inspiration involved. And and it, you know, I mean, Ben went an evolutionary biologist on this. My background actually is in anthropology. I was a research anthropologist, um, even in high school. Uh, I was doing field work. And you can look back in human history, and we have a pattern that has repeated over and over again. This is unique. This challenge is unique to the species. And I think if you, you know, believe in evolutionary biology, then we're not alone in the universe and uh, other life forms have progressed past this phase, which is the ability for us to envision our future separate from our individual selves as it relates to people who don't speak their same language, who are, you know, in this yet in the same boat, who, you know, we're all sinking at different rates, <laughs> maybe, but I think this is our existential challenge as a species. Um, and if we can handle it, this is a you know one quote unquote that we know how to fix, but it does require something bigger and grander of us. And if we're up to this challenge, then I have great I have great hope in humanity. And you know, speaking of my kid, um, we you know we do a lot of reading, and uh, we read the never ending story, the whole thing, not the movie, which is you know it's pretty awesome actually. And you know. If humanity doesn't have hopes and dreams, then we are nothing. We die in the nothing, right? And if we just buy into uh, there is nothing I can do about this when all answers exist, actually scientifically on paper, in studies and reality, we have all of the mechanisms available to us to fix this and we're just not doing it, then I know we can do it. You know, we have to fix human systems, which are slow um to really solve these things and i think that the impetus is and the momentum is growing and you can see it every day and you just cannot accept status quo right. so, um, so so what i think i'm hearing you both say is we don't really need new technology to solve these problems our problems are with the will of the people 
do, can we convince people to make the changes necessary in order to reduce our, our collective footprint and get off fossil fuels and come up with uh, non-polluting forms of energy, right? So if, if you were both, let's say I'm gonna write you both a check for a trillion dollars, would, would that help a trillion dollars? Is it about money or is it really just about will? I think it's about money, which is starting to accumulate. I mean, some folks are getting big investments to do great work. Um, some governments are really dedicating the funds. It's actually about systems change. I think systems change is actually the inertia that we're up against at this point. And, you know, and, you know, really there's, there's business now that's aligned with climate. Uh, it's awesome. They see the great, you know, that, that it's not a money losing opportunity. It's a money generating opportunity. It's a well-being opportunity. There's so much plus in doing this. It's our systems haven't caught up to the need and that's really us. That's, that's a human problem to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't see it as an either or like ultimately we have to do stuff and doing stuff costs money. There's a lot of investment that's required really another major kind of industrial style transformation of, of the way humans, you know, get our energy and, and uh, transport ourselves and goods and, and, you know, raise our food and, or, or you know, create our food. But, so, you know, we, there's, we need lots of investment, but it also needs to be an organizing principle for, you know, society at large. So to me, that, that relates to, you know, transformation and norms and values um, at a large scale. And, and I think that, you know, future people will, you know, if, if we're successful, well, no, if we're not successful, our descendants will look back on us and our values with great, you know, disgust, shame, and repugnance, right? Things which to us seem like normal activities that are just the milieu that we're in, right, will will seem terrible and disgusting to, to the future. Um, so, so late last year, the Biden administration passed the Inflation Recovery Act, which did a lot. I think should do a lot in, in addition to signaling to the rest of the world that the United States considers the climate crisis real. It's also putting uh, quite a lot of money into uh, a, a lot of renewables a lot in a lot of different areas. Do you think that we should be putting more money into offense or defense, adaptation or mitigation? You know, wh what's, what's most pressing right now? I mean, we've, this is an old argument that that really has gotten us at a pickle, frankly. Um, you know, a lot of folks in the history of of climate like really wanted to focus on mitigation because adaptation was somehow admitting that we had a problem, which is like insane. Like that's not how Alcoholics Anonymous works, <laughs> you know. Um, and actually, I would argue that adapt. I mean, even investment right now, like most of the climate tech both philanthropic and um, investment dollars have gone to mitigation um, and not to adaptation. And there's just, as of like this quarter, people starting to pay attention to adaptation. And I would, I would say that adaptation buys you mitigation. And this is coming from the front lines of New Orleans and other coastal communities that have been outright An destroyed. Example. Hmm? An example. Right, so after Katrina, 
you know, our, our city was destroyed, rebuilding at scale is happening. How do you rebuild at scale with mitigation? Like there were people like myself and my husband who were dedicated to trying to rebuild New Orleans smarter. So if you're going to redo a home, putting energy efficiency into the DNA of that home, elevating that home, giving it a strong roof, all of these, a strong roof, which by the way, you know, creates incredible energy efficiency opportunities if you build it correctly. So when we're talking about wholesale restructuring of a community, when we have these communities being destroyed or at risk or at, you know, who are heavily stressed, it invites the conversation for mitigation at scale in ways that are really challenging to achieve in other communities um, that aren't having the conversation about, about adaptation. Yeah. So I think that you need both and you need to do them together at the same time because we just can't afford financially or in terms of time scales to ignore them. Um, so if we're going to re you know, restructure how we live and our, and our routines and, and our infrastructure, we need to do both at the same time. And I think the Biden administration has been pretty good at seeing that, um, and, but that's recent. Yeah, I, I think I think this was an old argument, but there's increasing recognition that you need both. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I do think that the world ultimately cry, you know, the world makes you adapt, right? Like you can't really ignore adaptation because the impacts are here and growing in a way that it doesn't quite make you mitigate, right? The connection isn't as obvious or natural. And that's probably why historically there was so much more emphasis on the mitigation side, or maybe it's a dimension of that. But I also think it's very important that as we adapt and invest in that and experience impacts, you know, there's this need to constantly put climate change stickers on all of those impacts and all of those adaptation measures, because it would be easy to say this was an act of God, this was just another random thing. We're all experiencing so many more climate impacts all of the time than we even realize today. And so it's quite essential, I think, for us to put those stickers everywhere that they belong. You know, a few years ago, I... I made the decision to stop saying climate change, and I would only call it the climate crisis, because I felt like through language, we've lost a lot of years, a lot of, a lot of opportunities. Ben, I know that your organization has worked a lot with meteorologists on around the country on working on television and trying to get them to better understand and be able to talk about the climate crisis. Is it still a political problem? And when when do we get past the politics of this so that every it's all hands on deck and everybody becomes working on solving a collective and known crisis? Yeah. Well, you know, it's more a political problem at the level of kind of nationally elected leadership uh, than kind of the, the, the general public. But it, it's still, unfortunately and tragically, a, a political issue to a degree with the public. Although um, younger conservatives and Republicans tend to be more concerned about climate change than their elders, you see that in the polling. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, right, it's your backyard. This thing is coming. It doesn't really care. Uh, the atmosphere doesn't care, you know, what, what your politics are. Um, so, yeah, I, I liken it sometimes to two fire chiefs looking at smoke billowing out of it building and having an argument about whether there's a fire like they can have an argument about how to tackle the fire but um and they should do it quickly and then decide and try and approach um 
But yeah, you know, politics, unfortunately, in America and in a few other Anglophile places to a lesser degree is still animating this discussion. Um, are you finding that more, more of the meteorologists around the country are willing to even say the words climate crisis? Oh, oh um, probably not climate crisis so much, but climate change, yes, global warming, yes. I mean, when we started our work, meteorologists were behind the public. Uh, only just more than 50% of meteorologists thought the climate was changing in around 2010. And the public was closer to 60%. And by, I think, a survey in 2017, the public had advanced from like 57 to 72%, and meteorologists had advanced from 54 to 95%. Um, so, See, the people are always first. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were at first, but the meteorologists they were have first. They, they caught up. They caught up. They caught up. Well, you know, <laughs> like the meteorologists, their job is like following the bouncing ball of weather every day. So I you know. Can, like you no, know, climate but... change, what's that? But but once they started to look at it and evaluate the data and the science and connect that to their local experience, like it was it was a landslide. Mm -hmm. So, but we do see, you know, depending on the individual on the market, like there are different levels that they'll go. So when um, we provide a range of materials, like some just want to put up a chart that says, look, we have a warming trend here over the last 30 or 50 years. And others will say, no, this is climate change caused, you know, man-made climate change is doing this because we're polluting the atmosphere. Like you get that whole spectrum in terms of what they're willing to say on air. And the biggest obstacle has always been, you know, I'm afraid what my audience how my audience is going to react like everyone goes to the level where they think their audience is but generally speaking when people are afraid and then try it like we, we hear mostly success stories um and you know even in like a conservative market in texas like someone was you know started talking about climate change and and um you know and we do stay there because we're we're on fox we're on sinclair we're you know, in, in red, blue, and purple America on, on TV. Um, so we, it's important for us to frame this in ways that meteorologists and other messengers will bring to audience across the political spectrum um, and that they're ready to. You know, I wish they felt ready to bring, you know, climate crisis because that, that is the level of the problem. Um, but right now, they're not going to do that. So it's always a bit of a a trick, but you know they, um, you know we we've found public opinion shifting in in quite conservative media markets. We've found that when uh, TV meteorologists like you know once uh, one of our Mets didn't say something after a big heat spell and he got some questions from his audience, was this climate change? Why didn't you talk about it? Um, so. You know, there are hopeful stories like that. I mean, I think that the conversation from our perspective has shifted significantly and in terms of our evolution as well. Um, you know, there was a point in time in which I see change really was focused on attribution. I think that actually attribution, Ben, I don't know if you know this, was actually one of the reasons why um, we started, I started I see change. So it was in the Obama administration. It was during um in conversations with Holdren's team, the science advisors to the president at the time, 
um, I was like, hey, 2011, billion dollar disaster year. Why can't you get adaptation through Congress? And they said, well, um, I can't go to a congressperson and say, this is how much climate change costs your district. And that was an attribution issue. And then, and the entire field of attribution science has come a long way. But when we started, when I started, I see change. And um, the conversation from a journalism perspective was always, um, how can I find a scientist who will tell someone that uh, that flood or that their tomato crops were dying were because of climate change? And I could never find a scientist who would say it. They would always hedge like, well, that looks like what if this was climate change would look like. And this was only 10 years ago. Um, and we were unabashedly doing IC change reporting and data collection with the idea that no, everything that we we're dealing with has a climate change signature in it. A paper actually, I think in 2015 or 2016 proved us right. 2012, I think, according to the data, you can see a climate signature in every day in the world <laughs> on some level starting in 2012. Um, so when I say that people are always right, I mean, people have an instinct that this is changing, that this is wrong, that something's different. I think where the conversation is with regards is with and where the controversy is going to be, Republican or Democrat, is around how do we address it and how quickly. So, you know, if Ron DeSantis, who's just managed his hurricane issues in Florida, is in office, he's aware that we're dealing with, he's not an idiot, but he's got politics to deal with. So how do we adapt? How do we mitigate? There's no mitigation happening in Florida <laughs> where we do most of our work. And I think, again, packaging or adaptation and mitigation strategies together is really appealing to Republicans, including my own parents who are Republicans, who I have conversations about this every day. Um, they understand it's happening, but how do we address it? How fast? You can't just, they feel very strongly that changing wholesale quickly is damaging. And in many respects, they're not wrong. Doing a quick change will hurt a lot of people if we don't figure out ways to manage and mitigate those changes quickly and effectively and, and thoughtfully, which is why I see change is kind of trying to say, hey, let's hear from everybody about how we're going to do this at scale and efficiently so we can make the changes quickly um, with least impact to those most vulnerable. So what um, would you like everyone to do? <laughs> Well, I mean, the the most efficient way to reduce our um, emissions is actually energy efficiency, which is at a political and structural issue when it comes to utilities. And even if it comes from the federals, um, you need local stakeholders and local municipalities and states to go to their public service commissions and, and demand energy efficiency improvements that will reduce emissions in the most cost-effective, least disruptive way today. Um, another source of emissions that people don't really appreciate are huge are food waste um, and creating systems in which food waste is reduced and we're managing our food and streams is really critical. And those are also ways that we can reduce emissions for maximum benefit. Like people are hungry. We have food being thrown out. That's insane. Um, so really being unapologetic um, at the data where emissions come from and less political um, is actually a really good, you know, way of managing it. Um, and, and, you know, there's, yeah. there's ways to do this. And Ben, I know you want to say something. I just wanted to add. So what it sounds like I'm hearing you say, Julia, is as much as we often hear that an individual's role is not that significant. Indeed, it is. That's critical. That's yeah. right. 
So at we, sale. yeah, of course, because we often hear from the well, some policymakers, the, sometimes the corporate world or the industrial world. If we're looking at water supply globally, yeah, an individual's trickle while they brush their teeth may not be significant. However, the changes that we all make are going to add up, right? 40, mm -hmm. Over 40% of all the food that's grown is thrown away. If we turn that into feeding other people, we, we both help solve the climate crisis problem mm -hmm. and we help the starvation problem. Systems change demands in collective individual action. And that's why I say I see change is about being a good 21st century citizen, because we envision um, and understand that these systems are not adapted to 21st century stresses. And when I say systems, it means like my city's infrastructure, there is no physical financial way for any city to manage its infrastructure at the scale that we need to withstand climate threats and stress unless we actually work collaboratively with our citizens. Um, and so it's same with, with, with systems change. You need collective individuals demanding this stuff. It is political in that regard. Um, you know, politics is defined that way. Yeah, I'll just say connecting politics and speed of change, which is a big issue, right? There's so much um, change for the energy infrastructure and other infrastructure of the country and world that has to happen. We've got something politically very interesting, which is historically kind of climate actors have, and, and environmental actors, right, have been very interested in regulation to limit pollution. No, don't pollute, right? Now, the impetus is we have to build all of this solar. We have to build all of this wind. We need the transmission. We need CO2 pipelines to be able to put CO2 in the ground if that's part of the solution. There's a lot of building that has to happen. So we have to cut regulation to do that and streamline things. And so there's an interesting, like historically it's been environmentalists pro regulation, conservatives anti-regulation. Suddenly the environmentalists need to become, you know, anti a lot of regulations. That's going to be very uncomfortable for a lot of environmental and climate organizations, but it also presents an opportunity to reach you know, conservatives who want less government involvement. It's like, it could all fail and screw up, but there's also some interesting opportunity there. Yeah, that's great. Julia, a closing comment for you. Oh man, if you're on the audience and you're on the sidelines, like get involved. Uh, if you're a city and engineer or utility, give me a call. Ben, you know that we're opposite sides of the coin and we need to work together more. So you definitely follow up with me soon. And we we appreciate just having the conversation about how important this is, how critical it is, the philosophical aspects, but the actual role of practical ones. You know, we have people who, who are losing their homes. We have people who have health issues uh, from the heat and the air quality. And there's so many solutions on the table to make it happen. So That's great. And I would just say, that knowing that the two of you are out there doing this work and knowing that you have an amazing teams in your organizations and there are all these other organizations now working on the climate crisis, it gives me hope that collectively, that collective organizational action is going to be make, going to make a, a real difference. And I think that we actually can come out of this a lot better than we thought just a few years ago. And on that, you know, Ben and Julia, thank you both for your time today. And we wish you great success, tremendous success in your work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks so very much.
On behalf of the Alliance, thank you for joining us today for this important conversation. It's our hope that sharing these ideas will open new pathways to effective action, supporting the fragile world we share. Thanks also to the Americana Foundation for supporting this series. Find us on the web and get involved with our work at allianceofleadershipfellows.org.